just because I wanted to see the world really and um, obviously as a sailmaker you didn't have a lot of money so <laughs> you got on a boat and uh, did your travelling that way um, and then you know doors opened and you arrived in Gearbag and parts of the world and somebody had another regatta, another delivery, another boat was going where you wanted to go and it sort of basically hitchhiked around the world doing regattas. And I, I've seen some, you know, some very extreme things, um, you know, flying a helicopter to go and get a meal, you know, that was, and also sending vessels halfway around the world and back and the fuel costs alone. Yeah, there's always going to be a, some extreme somewhere and it's not always easy to understand, but, you know, to them, they understand and to them it has a meaning that it's not about the value, it's about the moment. I think you've got to be a bit of a gypsy deep in your heart to, to enjoy this life. We spend a lot of our time on the anchor. I think in two years, we we're only on the dock for like 50 something days. You know, the options and opportunities you have, I mean, this is just, uh, you know, sail all around the world is, doesn't get any better, to be honest. Hi, everyone, and welcome along to the last Broad Reach Radio podcast of the year. My name is Michael Brown, and today we talk to Nigel Blackburn, who has been involved in the superyacht industry for a large part of his 40 years at sea. He's worked for some of the wealthiest people in the world, including the Qatari royal family, overseeing the running of 19 superyachts and hundreds of staff. He was also team boss of the German America's Cup team in 2007, and more latterly has been captain of the famous schooner Altair, which is often seen as the vessel that set the standard for classic yacht restorations. Nigel talks about what got him into the industry, what it was like to work for the Qatari royal family, some of the demands owners place on their staff, and how often he really spends on land each year. He also talks about the similarities of running super yachts and running America's Cup campaigns. Nigel has a wealth of knowledge and experience, and clearly has a deep love of the ocean. I hope you enjoy his stories and his insights. Well, joining us on the show now is Nigel Blackburn. Welcome to the show. Um, you're a Kiwi, but haven't really lived here for 40 years or so. So what's, what are you doing in New Zealand at this time? Okay, um, we came to New Zealand with the schooner Altair. We're currently doing a five-year around-the-world tour. Um, she's a William Five schooner from 1931, um, built in Scotland on the Clyde. And... Um, she was built to go around the world um, by the client that commissioned her, but uh, she never actually ever did it. So the um, client that owns it now um, always had a dream of sailing around the world, and um, we always wanted to do it with a boat like Altair. So uh, we arrived in New Zealand um, about a year ago. Um, obviously, the world changed uh, in this last year, 2020. Um, so we planned uh, quite a few years ago to come here for a refit and then do some racing and then the America's Cup. Um, so we're just sort of putting together the, the program to get the boat finished, um, hopefully to meet the deadline for the America's Cup um, and just join as a spectator, obviously, and um, enjoy the, um, the sailing time that we're going to have in Auckland during that period. You could say it was pretty good timing to, to be here, given the circumstances of what's going on in the world. 
Yeah, this um, COVID and, um, you know, to be lucky enough, and especially my crew, I've got an international crew, we're probably up to 16 at the moment. Um, we're all very grateful to be in New Zealand in these times. And, um, you know, the lockdown was a, an amazing experience, like a very long school holiday and uh, never had that time in my, my life or adult life ever. So um, it was definitely a gift and a, a bonus uh, you know, across New Zealand to a lot of young families and people. Um, so, uh, no, it was, um, obviously came with a lot of meaning, but um, it was very, um, very well um, covered by um, you know, everybody, very grateful for that time as well and what it meant to the country as well. So tell me a little bit more about um, Altair and, and what makes her so special. Okay, Altair, um, early 80s, she was found. She was owned by a Spanish family that um, kept her for over 40 years in pretty much original condition. Um, she was purchased by Albert Albrecht, um, Swiss um, client, who then took it to England and um, restored it back to original glory, an absolute original glory. She was probably one of the last boats that were built in the Fife Yard, and there was generations of the Fife family in the shipbuilding business and very famous racing boats at that time. Um, so the materials and um, uh, the design was was quite unique um, in the sense the boat was built for racing, cruising, but took in all those years of um, very, very good naval architecture of that period into a, a very, very sea kindly boat and very fast. She's a gas schooner, uh, 35 metres overall, including bowsprit. Um, she's a wonderful sailing boat at all points and uh, has a long pedigree of racing and, and uh, history in the classic um, yacht world in the sense of that she really started the yacht, the classic yacht revolution and um, a lot of people saw the quality of the refit and beauty of the boat and uh, how she was delivered and um, she's continued to held that place um, in the industry for all these years um, and um, it's a very, very special, unique boat. And um, this is the fourth Fife boat that I've had the opportunity to, to be the captain of. And um, she's probably the last and the best and um, to have a chance to take around the, the world is, a, is a, quite a, a privilege and a lot of responsibility. The only one in the world. It's a bit like a one-off Ferrari, but um, we enjoy it very much. And the owner's a very passionate sailor. Um, and I've been with him over 30 years, so we have a very, very good relationship. And um, so to be in New Zealand now doing a refit um, for the services that we've had here, it's been fantastic. And um, you know, some of the shipbuilding, and especially the classic shipbuilding people we've been able to encounter on board. And um, you know, we've been able to do a very, very good job here in New Zealand. So you mentioned the fact that you're captain. So that's obviously what happens uh, on the water. But how does that role extend, I guess, off the water and particularly at a time like this? Um, you've still got a lot of responsibility, obviously, to the vessel in the sense of, you know, making sure it's safe and secure, your crew, um, maintenance, and at the moment we're in refit, obviously, but um, it's quite a project. We've taken it all in-house. We haven't passed the boat across to a shipyard. We do it off the dock here in Whangarei um, with our own team. Um, we've brought in um, people who have been involved with me before, um, um, John Garrett is an Englishman, very good shipwright and boat builder. Um, he's the project manager, and we've worked together as he's been my first mate uh, before, and we sailed together on Altair over 30 years together as well. Um, so we bring in people who are quite specialists at this work, and um, 
you know, so the captain duties really go into sort of semi-project manager refit duties. Um, so um, we're still running a business and we still have crew. We've got um, everybody in local uh, housing and vehicles and um, purchasing. Um, so it's still quite a quite a busy task. And how did you come to be captain of this amazing boat? Well, I was um, working in the Middle East um, as a superintendent to the royal family in Qatar, um, managing 19 super yachts, um, the large up to 125 metres. And um, as I mentioned, the owner of Old Head today is an old um, friend and uh, client of mine. Um, we were involved with another five called Halloween for many years. Um, and he contacted me and said, I've just bought Old Tear um, and um, I'd like to um, have the chance of taking it around the world um, over a period of time of five to six years. Um, would you be interested? So that was a, a rather fast and short phone call with a big yes, and uh, I would love to. And um, as I've said earlier, it's just a, a privilege to be involved. And um, you know, we're pretty much halfway through our journey. Um, I'm not sure what the future is going to bring for the continuation of the return to Europe, but um, at the moment we're just enjoying the, the New Zealand um, side of um, the refit and uh, having a chance to be in New Zealand living here at the moment. Yeah, well, you've certainly got a vast and rich background, and you just mentioned the Qatari royal family there, um, you know, in the super yacht and classic yacht industries, which I'm, I'm really keen to explore over the next little while. Um, but I really want to understand I guess how you got to this point uh, and you know we should delve into your background to better understand I guess how you came to be involved in the industry so I do know how, where you come from so how does a kid who grew up on a farm in the wire wrapper become a super yacht captain? Um, well a family farm down on the east coast um, and it wasn't until I went to boarding school in Auckland that I sort of really saw sailing and my friends had dinghies um, and um, I really, and we had obviously crayfishing working from the coast as well, and I, I've always enjoyed boats in that, that capacity. Um, but I really wanted to have a chance to, you know, do what they called, um, you know, blue waters racing and sailing. And um, I had an opportunity to um, work as a sailmaker with a company called Hood, who are no longer um, in business. Um, and mostly in Australia, um, and really that took me to the first level of offshore racing um, and um, various paths that were, were around the world, um, and really just was a, was a journey from there. At that point, to be honest, um, I came back to New Zealand at some point later on and worked with a shipbuilding company in New Zealand and the management capacity uh, with a young family. Um, but mostly it was the sail making that sort of really kick-started my, um, my career and um, mostly in the early years just in offshore racing and um, inshore racing with the smaller keelboats and um, contenders and this type of thing. So I've always, um, you know, I really enjoy those, those early days. They were, there was no money involved. It was just, um, you know, passion for sailing and um, T-shirt and a, and a beer and a place to sleep was enough. And, um, boy, we did some great miles and some great boats. So, uh, you know, really um, the early Iowa days, the boats, you know, were not so good downwind. and uh, But uh, was some really good racing with um, really good seamen and um, really, as I said earlier, just a, a deep, experienced group of young young guys just enjoying sailing. 
Why the ocean? Why blue water? Um, just because I wanted to see the world, really. And, um, you know, at, at that time, Pan Am Clipper Cup, um, Big Boat Series, um, Transpacks, um, you know, these were all in yachting magazines. And um, obviously, as a sailmaker, didn't have a lot of money. So <laughs> you got on a boat and uh, did your travelling that way. Um, and then, you know, doors opened and you arrived um, with your gear bag and parts of the world and somebody had another regatta, another delivery, uh, and, you know, um, another boat was going where you wanted to go and that sort of basically hitchhiked around the world doing regattas. Um, and, um, you know, that's sort of pretty much how we lived. And um, as I said, it was a wonderful time and, you know, we got to um, take some of the best boats in the business um, for ourselves, you know, on delivery and um, they were... They were a lot of fun and, and, and an experience that's very difficult to get now for a lot of the younger sailors in that regard because these types of um, deliveries are done on ships and uh, cargo vessels and that type of thing. So um, we used to sail a lot of the boats on, on their own keels at that time. I guess you've got quite a lot of stories uh, from all of those times and, and very good experiences. Were there any sort of... Uh, you know, more difficult experiences, some challenges, and you and you sort of which you've sort of used to to live by or, or not live by, if you know what I mean, um, in, in the rest of your sort of um, career in the industry. Early days, some of the Hobart races I did, I did the '86 race where there was quite um, quite a terrible storm, loss of life. Um, these were the races that taught me a lot about. Um, not so much the weather, but just being very well, you know, planning and safety, um, experience, good people around you, um, and knowing your boat, um, good procedures. Um, you know, these were days with pretty much a barometer. You had weather forecasting on radio. Um, sextants were still being used. Uh, no weather mapping, and um, you know the the experience that some of the older sailors that I had the benefit of sailing with in that time were. Know, something I've always um, treasured and um, look back on as um, you know very good lessons. And um, you know you still have your surprises with the weather, um, and especially with a boat like Altair, which has a huge um, um, canvas, a span of canvas. Um, so you don't make too many mistakes, um, and that's pretty much what it was all about. And you know from those earlier days, um, we were pushing these boats to the limit. Um, and you know when things went wrong, they went wrong uh, in a very big way um, and it's how you manage it too and how you recover and I always say you know everybody makes a mess but it's all about the recovery and how you manage that. Was it natural then for you to get your uh, license as a shipmaster? No not really I don't think I really I was pretty happy just being a trimmer and um, you know helming and um, I never really thought about being a skipper in those early days it wasn't until I got offered um, a swan to bring back from um, America in my early 20s, I suppose, and um, then the boat arrived in Australia and we put it in through charter to um, use as a dive and sailing charter up in the, in the Great Barrier Reef. And at that time, any paying client, you had to have a commercial licence. So that sort of drove me to um, um, getting a commercial licence. And I was one of the very first um, people to go into commercial in Australia in the system um with oil tanker you know crew and fishing crew so it was a it was a bit of a, a difficult period to be honest i was sort of regarded as that little yachty that was in the middle of the channel telling the big ship to go the other way but it went well i mean i did engineering at the same time 
so I had the dual tickets. Um, and, you know, that was sort of a bit of a, a groundbreaker, really. I had to get special compensation from the Marine Board. But at that time, I, I managed to have a lot of um, ocean miles. And um, they, they could see the benefit of what I was doing. And um, so I managed to get through the system um, with my masters and my engineers, um, and then went on to, on to charter, um, which was a great experience. Um, and that was for a couple of years. And then um, one of the clients that I was working with offered me a position in Europe. Um, and I said to a friend of mine at the time, well, we could have the best job in the world in Australia with a swan doing diving channel. We could go and see um, Europe. Um, see how the industry is there and that's pretty much um, how I ended up sort of traveling to Europe um, and how I got my master's ticket. How long does it take to get you know a ship's master's ticket and I guess what do you need to do to to get one? Well it's changed a lot now um, the days that I did it it was done through um, uh, basically the USL system which was out of America that was the sort of format they used in Australia but now um, the yacht system is through um, MCA and it's a different system completely, more or less specialised for super yachts um, and the private yachting industry. Um, it has a commercial status, obviously, up to a certain size. And a lot of the, the masters on the bigger vessels come from the commercial background. Um, and um, it's definitely improved over the years. There was an option many, many years ago to transfer the yacht licences across to commercial, but they, they divided it. And um, I think it was probably the, the right decision because the, the private yacht and the super yacht industry is, is, a, is a completely different um, identity too. Even though it has the same safety and a lot of the same systems as the commercial, it's um, a, a different part of the industry um, in, in maritime. Um, so it probably, I think if you, if you streamline and you came in with good experience and also if you had tickets before, you could probably in five years, six years with the right opportunities available to you get to a, a master's position on a reasonably sized vessel um, but that doesn't you know that's a very unique situation but it um, it just depends on you know the, the positions that are offered at the time the, the time you can get off to do your exams which are quite time um, expensive now um, and the, you know they're quite you have to get so much sea time which um, allows you to qualify um, so there's a lot of parts of it that add up to the final result well, I guess at this time of year, there's uh, always those um, functions where you're meeting new people all the time. But how would you describe, say, what you do, what your job is to, to someone who might not know what it entails? Um, pretty much just a yacht, yacht captain or a yacht skipper, to be honest. Um, it doesn't have really more than that. I think the job is all about experience and how you use that experience. Um, and there's, um, you know... Um, there's a generation that's come through with a lot more information, a lot more technology, um, which makes the job a lot easier. Um, but that's pretty much what I would, you know, I'm a yacht captain and um, you know, that's what I do. Are there many Kiwis like you working in the industry around the world? Oh, very much so. And the Kiwis are quite a big part of the industry um, and in all levels and, you know, in maintenance and, you know, got the big rigging companies in, in New Zealand. Um, and maintenance and um, no, with a big part of the super yacht industry is, is well covered by by Kiwis and they're, they're, they're well regarded and very, you know, very good crew generally overall and always have been. So what would you say to someone who was thinking about getting into it? What are the sort of the, some of the first steps they need to do? Um, I think what I would 
do. I mean, the business has grown so much since when we started in so many different ways. You've got different types of vessels in the sense of the big sailing vessels. You've got the classics, which has grown to quite a big industry now. You've got exploration vessels. Um, you've even got the smaller, you know, just the small um, couple boats, you know, the 60, 80 footers, just two, two people running them. Um, then you go up to the big super yachts where you've got um, engineering department, um, ETO or electronics, um, you know, hospitality. Um, and a lot of the big vessels are pretty much, um, you know, basically a hotel or, or um, that's, that part of the industry is about hospitality with some, some yachting or some maritime involved. Um, and, um, you know, they've got the chef, the, you know, the, the cooks um, and um, engineering crews, um, which are all different levels. Um, so there's many, many parts of this. Um, and, you know, some of, the, some of the vessels have helicopters and then um, you have also the, the, all the, the tenders that need to be um, driven and maintained. You've got security, uh, even have hairdressers and masseurs, um, even have nannies. So there's very, you know, there's a lot of parts to the to the industry that you can be involved with in different ways. Um, you have people who do it for a short-term investment for financial reasons. Other people do it for a full career path. Um, I know other people who just do deliveries. So when the yacht wants to travel the, the larger passages, the, the captain takes um, leave and they bring in another captain who delivers the yacht from A to B. Um, so. For somebody to get into the business, first of all, to identify what part of the business you want to work in of what interest, um, and um, obviously start to get into some experience, um, which can start in many ways. And really, once you're in the door, then you know, obviously on board, um, you can look at other options. Um, and there's a lot of options out there now than when you know the business first started, which is fantastic. So there's a lot of yachts out there, and they all need crew. Um, there's also management. Um, later on and in the service side of it as well um, so from my side i would say to you just choose the, the type of yachting you want to do in the industry and then target that and try and find an opportunity to get on board get some experience and then move move in different stages from there is it something that's conducive to having family around you or is it really a single person's uh, industry in the earlier days, um, it really is down to a single person. It can work, but it, it is a bit of a struggle. Um, I have had a family in the industry. Um, at times, it certainly um, you know, has been um, difficult. Um, just in the way you've generally worked the whole summer, um, not much time off. Um, and in the winter time, you sort of get your life back. Um, so that's, you know, it can be a real challenge. You need to have a very understanding partner. and Generally, most of the partners are from the industry, and they, you know, they understand the commitment we make, and also the challenges and the responsibilities that go with that. Now, you talked about the fact that you um, ended up in Europe. So, what was some of the early jobs that you had there? Really, I arrived. Um, the first real sort of sailing program was with Altair. I did a couple of years racing on her. Um, and then I was offered, um, with the same owner of Altair now, a vessel called Halloween, which was another five, um, which was a classic. Um, she was built in 1926. And that sort of pretty much pulled me out of the modern racing game or the interest I had in that into classics. And really what I wanted to do was get away from you know, pushing a button for an electric or a hydraulic winch and touching 
you know, line again or sheets and halyards and, and getting back to more of the, you know, the sort of natural basic sailing that um, I was I, I really enjoyed. And that's pretty much why I stayed with the classics and just the beauty of these boats and the types of owners and the crew that were involved with them. It was, you know, just still is today, probably just, a, you know, a big family and everybody shares the same passion, um, you know, keeping these boats um you know, out there, and they they're not not inexpensive to maintain. There's a lot of varnish. There's a lot of wood. Um, you know, it's uh, if you get an exchange to a modern boat, you could probably run another boat you know, double the size for the same money and probably less crew. So, um, you know, that's the you know the thanks also to the owners who who support the industry and support these vessels that allow allow them to exist. I suppose. When did the job with the Qatari royal family fit into this? Um this list of, of uh, jobs that you've had? Yeah, I just finished um, a three-year project um, with um, the Smith Foundation from Google, um, which is basically an exploration vessel that we built in northern Europe and Germany. Um, and um, then I was offered the position as a superintendent for the Qatari fleet out of the uh, in the Middle East. Um, so I basically just sort of basically step from more or less one dock to another dock. Um, and, um, you know, that was quite a quite a challenging position, obviously 19 yachts all working at the same time and all the crew and, um, you know, the maintenance and the servicing. And, um, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, I often say to people, you know, you, you really need to work in the Middle East to know how it works and um, to understand it. Um, but uh, I enjoyed it very, very much. Learned, learned a lot about... Um, you know the um, process and construction and systems and um, you know basically keeping everything flying because obviously in that environment um, nothing goes wrong and everything works every time so um, you know that was a you know quite a challenge to make that happen especially in a in a marine environment was there quite a bit of pressure on you with with 19 vessels and a, you know how many staff are we talking about <laughs> I don't think I've added, added them all up but one vessel had over a hundred crew so uh, um, no, it was a bit of a struggle to keep it all all working at the same time. But obviously, we're in refit. We're in you know in downtime and service. Um, um, yeah, it, um, but you had to rely a lot on the captains and the engineers who all did great jobs. Um, you know to make sure they basically sort of did your job, I suppose, uh, which was my job. Um, and um, more or less, it was just you know um, more advisory role. Um, you know getting things and making things happen and getting things done, to be honest. Um, and generally, you know, the, the vessels were fairly good quality. Um, so, you know, they they were maintained quite well. So on on, on most situations, um, you know, we had good people available who could manage things quite well. But you didn't do a lot of actual sailing yourself in that role? Uh, yes, I did. I did... Um, you know, some of the sea trials and some of the passages, um, obviously just to, you know, to check systems and things like that. Um, and I was on board the vessels quite regularly for inspections and um, obviously, uh, you know, planning, um, especially the refits and the, the ongoing maintenance. Um, so there was, you know, quite an active um, period of time on different vessels at times. Now, there's obviously plenty of money knocking around the Qatari royal family, and, and I was just having a wee hunt the other day, and estimates this year put their fortune at about 500 billion New Zealand dollars. Um, I just can't comprehend how much that is. What were they like as people to work for? 
Um, I enjoyed it very much. I'm very clear on what they wanted, um, and you made sure that that was delivered. Um, and they, the, the community comes from, you know, they were very much into fishing and I think probably a bit of smuggling in the good old days. And so they, they basically were boat people, and um, they understand boats. They understand the, the industry very well. And um, and the biggest thing was, you know, you, you, you um, pretty much give – you know, make it happen and um, give people what they want and it generally works quite well. I'm guessing you had a few dignitaries on board from time to time? Yes. Um, yeah, but that's a whole different part of the business, you know, the privacy and the security. Um, and, um, you know, that's a very much a big part of the, you know, especially the larger yachts um, where they are and, um, you know, obviously the privacy that goes with that. Do people ever try to coerce stuff out of you, get some secrets or gossip? No, not really. It's a very strong code in the business, um, how that works, and um, you know, people respect that, and I think that's you know, something that's will will um, cover across the industry. Now, I saw that three of the super yachts owned by the Qatari royal family were destroyed last year. Were were they ones that you were working on? Um. They've had some new ones being built um, since I've been away um, from that position. But um, Katara was probably the, the largest one that I was involved with. But um, there are larger ones that have, have come to the family afterwards, though. How did you greet that news? Um, well, they were, they were boats that I, I worked on. Um, I still don't understand how that was, uh, you know, actually what actually happened there and how the fire... Um, was caused um, but that facility I worked in quite quite a lot at that time um, it was an amazing um, shipyard um, and it also was the service shipyard for the LNG tankers as well um, but all those boats were part of the fleet that I managed. What other sort of nodal organizations or, or people have you worked for? I think probably Google was probably the one of the ones I've enjoyed a lot, and also some of the management companies. Um, you know, just an experience and interest. Um, I built the the Falcor for the Google for for the Spit Foundation, um, which is also working involved with the Google Ocean thing as well. Um, and that for me was a was a wonderful um, experience and challenge. We took a um, Coast Guard cutter and converted it into an exploration vessel, which um, travels globally doing um, science services, um, mostly in marine conservation. And, you know, it's something that I think there's a lot more demand needed in the world. And I, I wish, you know, if I was in the business another 40 years um, in the future, I, I would be in doing these types of vessels. I enjoy it very much, um, especially the um, talking to the scientists and what's happening with our environment, especially the oceans. I mean, we know more about probably the moon than we know about some of our deep oceans, um, and that would be something that would be very much of interest for me um, going forward. Um, but, um, you know, it comes in different stages. I worked for the Getty family um, with their vessels, um, and, um, you know, every family, you know, they have a history. They, you know, they have a story in different ways. Um, so, yeah, it's just, um, you know, part, part of how it, how it works in, in the industry. and um, you know, you sort of, as I said earlier, you, you go from one dock to another and uh, job to job. And, um, you know, the family and the, the 
owners come with that. Mm. You also hear some stories about some fairly ridiculous demands put on some super yacht staff and, and just having a scan through some earlier on, probably one that stands out for me was um, 500 white roses to be on board by dinner time and the wife asked them to be thrown overboard after dinner, even though it probably cost about $100,000 to locate them and fly, the, fly them in. You know, have you experienced episodes like that? Yes, yes and no. Um, but what I will say, though, I mean, at that level of wealth, um, you know, there was probably a, a special meaning to that, and you know, probably had a you know something that belonged to obviously whoever was involved. That you know, um, it's just really has a has a value that doesn't come down to money. It's the moment and and what that meant at, at that time. And I, I've seen some, you know. Some very extreme things, um, you know, flying a helicopter to go and get a meal, you know, that was, and also sending vessels halfway around the world and back, you know, and and the fuel costs alone, um, you know, it's um it's pretty much you know part and parcel of the business, I suppose, in certain ways, and, and some some areas it's a little bit more extreme than other, um, but when when you talk about you know as I said about the wealth and what that covers, you know, you are able to do things, you know, which you know the normal um, lifestyle wouldn't understand, um, but in that industry, there's um, you know there's a new norm, and it's uh, can be quite extreme, um, especially with some of the Russians and um, you know some of the some of the you know the largest you know um, yacht owners. I mean, um, yeah, there's always going to be a, some extreme somewhere, and it's not always easy to understand. But you know, to them, they understand, and to them, it has a meaning that. It's not about the value, it's about the moment. So it's a case of having to say yes and doing your damnedest to try to satisfy that demand? Yeah, absolutely. And then in the business, you know, quite often owners, they don't ask for much, but you give them what they want and generally it's all okay. And it's sometimes not a lot. It's just, has a, as I said, um, a meaning to them and it's important to them and, and um, it really, really works well. What are, what are most owners like, or you know, most owners that you've experienced? Some of these people are, you know, they have huge wealth and for a reason. Um, but generally, behind pretty much all of them, um, they're good people. And especially if they, you know, they're involved in yachting and they're involved in sailing, they have a passion, they have an interest, and um, you know, there's. Um, you know, there, there's very few moments that I can think of, well, you know, I wouldn't want to do this again. Um, and generally, you know, there are people like everybody else in the sense of, you know, they, they know how they want to live their lives. They know what they want to do with their recreation and what they want to do with the yachts. And you just really give them what they want and, um, and do it in a way that everybody enjoys. They don't need to see behind the scenes when things are not working properly and, um you know, um, systems break down. Um, that's your job as a captain, and you know you make that happen. So everybody has a wonderful experience, and you know they own that for another year, and they till they come back next year. Um, and that's how it works. You t you talked about racing and doing a, a fair number of races. Um, do the owners typically come on board, even for those long ones, or do they do little bits here and there? Absolutely. Um, we took, um, we did some classic um, uh, race across the Atlantic with an owner. Uh, he was in his 80s, actually. Um, and, um, you know, with the circuit that we did in Europe was every year, the, the, the summer season, we had, a, had quite a 
quite a set schedule for the for the regattas, and they were wonderful because everybody sort of met. It was like a you know big yacht rally, really, and it was sort of like meeting your family every year, and um, we enjoyed that immensely. And it was some very keen racing, and um, you know every year there was new boats, and um, you know the industry grew, you know every year, and um, it's um, you know it was sort of wonderful to see you know the twelve meter fleets grow, the J boat fleets grow to where they are today. Um, and, you know, the industry itself is healthy and strong, especially in the classics. And, um, you know, I just hope it keep, keeps continuing. I mean, we, we don't have the the vessels available now for the big restorations. I think most of them generally are gone. There might be the old barn find surprise in the bottom of a swamp somewhere. But um, generally the big boats have, you know, sort of shown the light and, and come out. Um, but, um, no, we, we, we raced. Uh, we had a crew that came from... Um, Switzerland every year, and they they were very very skilled um, sailors, especially in meter class. And it was great for me as the as the captain to have the same crew every year. And you know that they were really you know we could really push the boat and and do strong maneuvers um, safely and um, and well. Now in two thousand and seven, um, you changed tack. Excuse the pun, because you joined the German America's Cup team that raced in Valencia. How did that all come about? Um, I was in Auckland with uh, McMullen Wing Shipyard um, doing management, and I got contacted for the shore manager's position um, to go to Valencia, and I had a, obviously some serious thoughts about what would be involved in that and literally just parachuted into <laughs> Valencia and um, pretty much started the, the next morning, and it was wonderful. It was a... A fantastic America's Cup in the sense of all the European teams involved and the Germans hadn't done it before. Um, so, you know, from, from that perspective, it was, you know, really, you know, sort of the, the baptism of fire or, or the honeymoon um, experience. But we had a great team, a lot of Kiwis. Um, and, um, you know, from my side, um, you know, we went really well in the sense of, you know, with a new team and how it went. I mean, on the water was probably a different thing. Um, but technically and the way things managed, I don't think we ever had one breakdown racing at all in any regard. Um, and we always had moments in practice where we broke rigs and rudders and things like, like everybody else. But um, it, was, um, it was a terrific time and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think everybody can look back and say it was probably one of the best America's Cup um, regattas uh, ever, um, especially with all the um, competitors that, that, that attended throughout Europe and, and globally. Were there a lot of similarities to running an America's Tut team, to running, you know, a, a fleet owned by the royal family or, um, you know, a super yacht with lots of lots of staff on board? Very, very similar. Um, you know, you had maintenance, you had, you know, people doing shifts, you had people doing food, you had people doing security, you had your tow boats. I mean, it is very, very similar. Um, if you know, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, afterwards, you know, you can look back and say, yeah, we could do that well. And, so, and sometimes when you, you know, you're pushing the envelope a little bit, um, especially in the design, um, you know, things don't work out well. And as I said earlier, it's about the recovery and how you manage that. Um, a lot of long night hours at times and uh, looking after people and families um, from all over the world. Um, so, yes, it is very, very similar. It's, um, 
you know, just uh, the base itself um, that has to be run as a as a business. Um, there's a lot of other people involved in that as well, not necessarily on the sailing capacity, gymnasiums, um, uh, you know, the training of the of the crew, the exercise side of things, physiotherapists, um, dietitians, um, and design, um, and also the the components that were made in other locations, um, the management of that as well. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of um, you know point to point um, similarities. What sort of traction did you did the campaign have in Germany? The there is quite a community of of sailors that really felt um, that um, it was a great experience for the Germans to do something like this. But the 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 depth of the of the of the, the German community itself. I mean, I'm talking about. Um, the country as a whole really, you know, at times didn't really know they, they were attending the America's Cup. Um, so it's not like the Kiwis, like every mum and dad, you know, with um, Peter Blake um, were well educated about the America's Cup so they could support it and understood how it worked. So I think internationally in the country itself um, and more nationally that, you know, they there was a community that understood it very well and what they were doing. But generally across the country itself, there, there wasn't a lot of direct injury. I mean, they're more of a football nation and this type of thing. Um, and um, it was more of a sort of a, um, a more of a boutique activity um, situation. Did you think it would kickstart sort of a longer term interest in Germany in the America's Cup? Because I think by my reckoning, we haven't seen a German team since. Yeah, I think um, they definitely do have the technology and the wealth there to do a campaign. As I said, they probably just don't have the numbers there of interest um, to, to push um, another program um, like that. And I'm pretty sure that could be done, absolutely. And what they, when they do, they do it very well. Um, and it also, from that campaign, boosted a lot of um, offshore sailors um, from that campaign from the German community as well. So... Um, they definitely have the depth there to do it again and do it very well. Um, it's just a matter of putting in the organisation to put that together and the interest to put that together. And I think the two of those things need to be done, you know, in, in the right way. What about you? Is it is the America's Cup something you'd like to be involved in again one day? Oh, um, probably not. No, I think these new boats and what they're doing are, are um, it's just a, another world. I, I, I mean, I... Grew up in keel boats and and a whole different type of sailing. I, I certainly, um, well, Dan Bersonsoni, who's the designer for the Kiwis, he was our designer with Team Germany, um, and he was a huge talent even then. Um, and when I look at what they're doing with these boats and the performance and the speeds, and uh, I think their uh, their service side of it and their shore crew keep keep very busy. Um, just keeping them going and keeping them maintained and um, you know the technology is changing so fast and maybe even daily they've got to do alterations and you know to stay in the game and um, to keep up with um, you know the other challenges around them and I mean when I see these boats it's you know I think any one of them if they get the right combination and the right formula it can be very very competitive um, and I don't really understand the you know I understand the foiling and and the system but I've just never had any experience at that um, and I used to sail a lot on the on the second boat that we had in, in, in Valencia and, you know, all the shore crew were involved in that as well. 
um, just how the boat worked and you know the performance parameters that that were involved with that. Um, but this this monofoiling is a is another level generation that is you know something I've, I I didn't grow up with or, or have a lot of experience with. But if you said to me would I have a go at it, I would probably say yes. I think it'd be amazing. Um, and even though when I see the Vendi Globe boats now and how they're performing and uh, you know they were, for me they were um, you know it's just an amazing way to go sailing. Um, so the answer is probably yes, but. Um, I think also there's a huge challenge that goes with that job, more so than probably what we had in Valencia. Surely you could put a set of foils on Altair? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the boss would like that. Um, not, not not for the moment, but, um, you know, as I said, you know, the, the foiling thing is um, I'm just amazed and I, I, I just can't say enough how, um, you know, this is as a spectator um, seeing the... the um, the performance of these boats um but in saying that with old tear i mean we we race her regularly um she's very competitive um in her own class and um you know we need 30 good guys on deck to sail her so she has enough challenges without foils um especially when we use the big big sails um and um you know uh, in a good day she's um you know, a very very competitive boat it's just hard finding other big schooners in this part of the world to go racing with now you've been here, what, I'm guessing 12 months or so. Is that the longest period of time that you've been in one place for quite a considerable amount of time? Yes, it has. Um, we sort of really sort of planned this refit out a couple of years ago and um, it was sort of, as I said, we tried to dovetail it into um, the next um, quarter of 2021. Um and um, you know, then we're going to have a look at our options as to um, you know what we can do offshore um, once the cup's finished, and um, we've had some time in New Zealand cruising. How do you cope with that transient existence, or are you a type of guy who actually gets a bit itchy feet, you know, standing on firm ground, and you just want to get out on the water? Um, I enjoy it very much. Um, I think you've got to be a bit of a gypsy deep in your heart to, to enjoy this life. Um, but, you know, it's it's putting new crew together, sailing the boat, and um, especially with the with the, the client, um, those adventures, and especially in the Pacific, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of our time on the anchor. I think in I think two years we're only on the dock for like something like 50-something days. Um, so we do a lot of miles, and, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy, um, you know, Traveling with Old Tear, and most places we go, people know the boat, and um, you know, people are always very interested to have a have a look over um, the vessel at times. Um, and um, you know, I think um, you know when I uh, you know see you know the options and opportunities you have. I mean, this is just uh, you know to sail Old Tear around the world is doesn't get any better, to be honest. So that's obviously a good part of the job. What, what's say the worst part about the job? Probably not too many downsides to it, to be honest. I think probably not having enough of your own private life um, and private time. I mean, the dog, the, you know, the job really takes a, a lot of that away from you. But I think you've got to be quite strict in, in giving yourself um, time away and, um, you know, taking care of, um, you know, your personal life uh, off the vessel as well. I think that's quite important. And New Zealand gives me that opportunity. I, I like hunting and fishing a lot and, and seeing, you know, obviously my family. Um, so, 
you know, these are things that I have to be very conscious of, you know, because the, these kinds of jobs can consume you and can take your life completely. And that's something you need to learn and um, hopefully you don't learn it the hard way. Where do you see the industry going? You know, especially, I guess, post-COVID as well. Um, that's quite a big question. It's quite a, quite a wide question, that, because the industry itself has many parts. Um, and really where I am is in the classic yacht pass, even though I've been involved with the, the largest super yachts and exploration vessels. And um, I can see the industry becoming more um, bespoke towards um, exploration, for sure, especially with the environment. Um, and, you know, as, as I said earlier, if that's something, you know, if I was to go into the super yacht industry, I would look quite seriously at, especially vessels that are capable of polar regions and... Um, now that for me is, is is still very much of interest, and using you know underwater um, equipment um, for the ROVs and ADVs and this type of thing. Um, where it's going in the future, um, boats are getting bigger, crews are getting bigger. Um, the systems is there is there a limit? Um, I don't think we've seen that yet. Um, and even just talking about these falling, if I said to you twenty years ago we'd be falling at forty odd knots, I mean we'd never even have that discussion. Um, but I can see the boats hitting a threshold in the sense of, first of all, the, the docking side of it and the service side of it. Um, and I think, you know, the 150 metre is pretty much, you know, around that range now. I know there's, there's ones that are going to be well over that, but they're going to be quite unique and quite because they take a lot of um, service and a lot of um, management. Um, and, you know, they, they really become, you know, really... A, almost like a commercial ship operation, which a lot of these bigger boats are. Um, so I think as the, as the world changes and, and um, uh, I think a lot of the vessels are going to be more um, global endurance in the sense of the way they can travel the world and less stops and, um, you know, going to more um, remote locations um, and more of a, uh, a safety net for some of the owners, you know, during you know, situations that we're experiencing at the moment, you know, to have a, an environment they can go to that's, um, you know, health, safety, and, um, you know, gives them some protection. What about you? You know, you've talked about Altair and this round-the-world adventure. Do you have any sort of plans beyond that? Um, no, I mean, I'm one of those guys, I I just really live by the, the moment in the sense of what I'm doing day-to-day. -day. I mean, I've seen... In my time, things can change very quickly. Just with one phone call from a doctor, um, you know, you you just really need to in this business just live from the moment. I mean, it's not in bricks and mortar that it's it's movable or mobile. Um, but I think I'll finish, you know, we'll finish the world tour, and uh, I'll take a little bit of time off, um, and then I'll see uh, what uh, next comes uh, on the phone call or the email. Um, but I, I love a challenge, and I love doing you know, um, jobs that are just completely different, um, right down to huge, um, you know, gas turbine repairs on super yachts to all sorts of, of works of interest. So it's just not just down to sailing vessels, but the classics definitely have my heart. Um, and, you know, there's always, um, you know, something out there. And I, 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 I would always like to see travel and um, the way I like living um, as being mobile. Um, as part of the future as well, and um, I've got a plan of a, um, a big camping truck in Europe, which I would like to do some more travelling by land, 
um, and see a bit more of the world that I can't see from the yacht, you know, situation. Um, so that's pretty much the future that I'm looking for. But, you know, at the moment, it's more of just um, living the moment and, and enjoying as much as I can, to be honest. Is there any part of the, the oceans that you haven't been to yet that you'd like to get to? Um, parts of Asia I haven't spent much time. We're going there uh, after New Zealand, um, up through Asia. Um, yeah, there's a few parts of the Pacific I'd like to spend a bit more time, but it's changed a lot. I mean, fishing isn't what it used to be. Um, I do a lot of diving. Um, you know, the when I look at what's happened to the Great Barrier Reef when I when I used to live there. Um, you know, so, you know, the world world's changing in, in that regard. Um, but places I haven't been, um, yeah, parts of Africa and those sort of places, um, I certainly would like to have an opportunity of visiting as well. And also... Um, parts of um, South America. Um, but it's just all about time and having the right vessel and the right program. And that's also the business too, is having the right vessel, the right client or owner and the right program. I mean, all those three things have to be together. And, you know, it works, um, you know, it works very, very well if you can make that happen. Well, it sounds like you have worked very well with the majority of your your career, that's for sure. But are there times, and this brings me to my final question, are there times when things went a bit haywire? I need to ask you, Nigel, is what is your worst wipeout ever? <laughs> There's quite a few. <laughs> I think the best, oh, probably the worst. I mean, a few years ago, we lost all the top masts on Altair Racing in America and Marblehead. I mean, the top mast runner failed and brought the whole house down. Um, you know, the owner was on board with we racing and you know things like that you know it just breaks your heart you know um just to um you know to see that much damage just because of one one small item um you know and um yeah that's probably the best one i've had yeah i mean there's a lot of smaller ones um you know in sailing and jiving and these types of things but uh it was probably the biggest schooner one that i've had at least I guess it's not your money when it comes to the, the fix-up job, right? <laughs> it's definitely my time, though. Um, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, that's why I said it's just wonderful to have the owners that can support this industry the way we, and we can get a chance to enjoy it the way we do and, and uh, you know, share the passion. And, um, you know, but it is time and, um, you know, the repairs have to be done properly and, um, you know, there's no, no shortcuts. And... Um, so, yeah, you have one day sailing and then you have a big program for the next two or three months. So um, it can become quite expensive, that's for sure. Mm. Well, we certainly look forward to seeing Altea out on the water um, soon, and particularly if um, it's sort of lining up next to the America's Cup boats in the next um, weeks and months. Um, but um, look, really like to thank you for, for making the time to chat today. It's been really interesting to, to delve into a different part of the, the marine industry. Um, and good luck with the, the rest of the refit and um, and your plans to, to get around the world. Thanks, Michael, and you all the best as well. Well, that's it for this week's podcast, and it's actually the last one of the year. I've really enjoyed bringing them to you this year, and we'll look to get things up and running again sometime in January. In the meantime, make sure you have a happy and safe Christmas, and we'll see you again in the new year. <laughs>